This is the Lotox Life Podcast. If all the birds could fly right now, as high as me somehow, they could see all the things I've been dreaming of. These wings of mine flutter inside, they shimmy and they glide, breaking forth, crack the shell from this clockwork light. Hello and welcome to the Lotox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 226. And uh, boy, is it a show uh, that really got right into a very, very deep place in my heart. I've never actually burst into tears on my show before. I've had a couple of release cries after some of the more intense interviews with big topics that perhaps might have had something to do with me or... Um, my health or just a realisation about the state of the planet and, you know, sometimes you really just need to have a good cry. Uh, but today I cry live <laughs> right here in the show. I am joined by the wonderful clinical psychologist Amanda Gordon based here in Sydney from Armchair Psychology in Edgecliff. If you're uh, in need of a psychology team, uh, I after speaking to Amanda today, I'm literally like thinking, is there something I might need to go for? Because she was just so fantastic, and uh, on a subject that is not easy, neither for the people grieving and moving through grief, nor for the people who are trying to figure out how to best help uh, along that journey, and. It's something I've wanted to talk about uh, for a while now um, and something that I found interesting in uh, my, uh, there's something I say at one point where I say, you know, I haven't experienced a huge amount of uh, grief or hardship in my life. But then, of course, it's it's unbelievable how much we can suppress or not acknowledge or not sit with for long enough to realise how big a deal it was and today I really had one of those massive realisations and it was just completely uh, triggered in two waves. One was when Amanda was talking about people who lose loved ones in uh, tragic and very quick circumstances, here one day, gone the next, here one moment, gone the next. And I've had uh, a very close friend uh, lose her husband um, a couple of years ago, and uh, that's that's something. Just thinking about that uh, while she was talking was um, I was fighting back the tears, uh, and then um, she spoke of suicide and, and children suiciding. And uh, in our family, my first cousin took his life. Um, uh, I'm actually even not sure if you know when you think, oh gosh, is that even the right term? I'm not even sure if that's the right thing to say. And I'm leaving it in here because we can't keep being outraged by someone saying the wrong thing when we're all just trying to learn what the best thing to say, how the best thing to say something is. Uh, I I see a lot of that at the moment and, uh, and I don't think it's actually helping us all be better at feeling and connecting more. I think it's actually repelling us from expressing uh, more because we're scared to express, right? So I'm actually just going to leave that in there. Uh, anyway, um, and and it was it was tragic, absolutely tragic. He'd had a number of tragic few years prior, uh, 
different family members, health professionals, you know, everyone tries to help as best they can. But at the end of the day, that is someone's decision and someone's alone. Um, uh, and, uh, and I realised just how little I did to actually face that head on and sit with it, really be with how tragic that was that my beautiful first cousin, Charles, is no longer with us. Um, and, yeah, so uh, I, my heart goes out to anyone who is really, really affected by today's show. Please don't feel that because you are moving through grief right now or that you have someone super close to you that is grieving that this show is going to be too much for you. I can honestly say... Uh, as being a, a member of this two-part interview, <laughs> the only person in the room, literally, while it was happening, it is one of the most powerful hours of uh, your life coming up. And uh, some, something about the way Amanda is able to help us navigate the toughest of situations um, and subjects uh, I found incredibly um, admirable. And, uh, and was really in awe of how she was able to navigate the, the interview with just such incredible answers. Obviously, a woman who has uh, had personal uh, experience with grief, which she shares also on the show, as well as helping clients over the years. So I hope you enjoy uh, this um, interview. Uh, Amanda, just to give you an idea of how much uh, experience she has and how esteemed she is, in her uh, in the field of psychology in this country and beyond she is the former president of the Australian Psychological Association as uh, society rather and she was elected by her peers for two consecutive terms uh, she's also you might have seen her in the media I know Mamma Mia did uh, a series of um, interviews with her as well so uh, let this be the start of your Amanda journey and uh, I'm sure you will find much more good stuff online that she can support you with um, now, before I kick into that uh, interview, I want to remind you that we are in the middle of March, which means you still have a number of weeks to make the most of your Walida 100th birthday special offer. Now, someone asked me the other day, why do you always really only stick to a few brands? <laughs> and uh, the answer is super simple. One, uh, when I went low tox, and obviously it's still an evolving journey, but uh, when I did that and the way I teach go low tox, which, by the way, you can still sneak in. We're just starting the second week of go low tox. So head to lowtoxlife.com and click on courses and go low tox. I'll shut up registration um, this week. But some people who miss the social media and um, all of that kind of jazz and maybe you didn't see that it was on, it's a live coached round of 22 topics by me in a private group with a huge dashboard of interviews, resources, research, swaps, UK, US, Australia, Canada, New Zealand off, uh, options uh, and uh, really, really just an amazing way to feel empowered instead of constantly confused by internet rabbit holes on what frying pan or pillow to get or you know uh, how to control dust best in your home like we cover absolutely everything even detoxifying from fat soluble and water soluble chemicals so 
It's, uh, it's well underway, but there's no reason you can't catch up if you're keen. Um, and that's just a little segue. But I, I say that to say in that course, I am particularly passionate about it not being about swapping absolutely every single thing for something. Sometimes there are just a bunch of things we don't need. So simplification is one of the key aspects of going low tox, but so is detaching from the need to be excited or wowed by everything that's shiny and new. Um, Because they've always been uh, pioneering low-tox brands. It took me a while to find them when I first started. And yes, there have been a ton of amazing new companies start and create beautiful low-tox sunscreens, bleach-free toilet paper. I mean, I could go on and on about how spoiled for choice we are these days. But Walida is one of the true pioneers. And since the founding of that company, which was birthed on the biodynamic teachings of Rudolf Steiner back in the early 1900s, it has never strayed from the mission to fortify, strengthen, improve the environments in which it farms to produce its products. And so you have a truly regenerative company uh, and has been now for 100 years Um, I don't need to see the new organic serum by such and such a brand on the market um, that has just bought things on the open market and got their organic certification. You know, I just, I don't get excited by that anymore. I get excited by people changing the world through business uh, if I'm going to buy something from a business. And Walida does that every single day. They change local economies. They strengthen things like schools, education, medical uh, support for communities all over the world where they have partner farms and the products are second to none. So this month you have your code Walida10, uh, Walida10, not Walida10, Walida100 and that gives you fifteen 15% off the entire Walida range. I'm not doing too well with the offer here so I'm going to say it again. Walida100, 15% off the entire Walida range and little birthday, uh, 100th birthday surprise, a bonus 75 mil skin food, which is valued at $25.95 with all orders over 100. Now, I know a lot of you guys use skin food, so that is amazing. You stock up on a few things, get 15% off and get a free skin food. And skin food was actually launched in 1926. So talk about pioneering, right? And when something ain't broke, you don't need to fix it. It is such an incredible product uh, for everything from dry skin to uh, healing and providing a good barrier, uh, like those little rough parts of your elbows, knees, heels. Um, It's wonderful for putting under your eyes as a glowy kind of makeup base. There's just so many wonderful uses for it. So enjoy that offer. Please spread the word to your family and friends that it's on right now. And of course, enjoy and take great comfort in this interview with psychologist Amanda Gordon. Hello, Amanda. How are you? Hello, Alex. I'm very well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so excited uh, for this topic. It's a topic that uh, whether you are the person grieving or whether you are the person trying to be supportive, Uh, of someone's grieving process, uh, 
a lot of people are fumbling in the dark. You know, no one raises you, especially in Anglo-Saxon culture, quite void of rites of passage generally. Uh, There's no blueprint, there's no handbook, uh, and, you know, you're too scared to do something sometimes because you're going to offend someone or hurt them. And the very people that you love the most that you're trying to support through their most difficult times. So I'm truly grateful for your expertise and for having you here today. So where do we start? I always like to start by asking uh, what got you into psychology? You know, you growing up, you're thinking, what am I going to do? Finishing school, what, what should I study at uni? What was, was there a kernel early on for you or did it come later? Um, it, everyone has their own complex story, I guess. I'm one of five siblings and we always had plenty of good conversations around the table. Um, In my era, mental health was something that was never discussed. So it wasn't, that wasn't the issue at all, but we were a family that was very much about social justice and human rights and caring for the other and making sure other people were safe and caring for them. And so my elder sister went into law, made perfect sense. And in fact, Law was where it was expected, I think, that I would go as well. I was much more interested in medicine and the sciences. Um, My parents had a rather old-fashioned view that medicine was a long route for a woman to take, Mm. fascinatingly, despite their their early feminism and despite Mm -hmm. their ignorance of the system in which we discovered that, in fact, the path to being a clinical psychologist is also a very long and torturous route. Yes, it is. Um, And so I didn't want to do the same thing as my sister. I wanted to do something that helped other people. I had no idea what psychology was, but you needed a pretty good mark to get in. So I thought it might be quite challenging. And so for all the wrong reasons, I chose a career. Mm. But I chose a career which had the excitement of being within the sciences. It was it sat within biological sciences and I was very interested in the sciences and the humanities and it had the breadth of that. It wasn't straight law or straight science. It was something that... It was a fusion of sorts. Absolutely. And Mm. I did subjects like history and philosophy of science and I did subjects like straight biology and maths and psychology, but, but those other philosophical things as well. And it gave me a a way of thinking that's been helpful throughout my life. But I think the thing that really tipped me over from, I thought I would go the research pathway because that's what you did. If you were really good at something at university, they would push you towards the PhD route and you'd be a researcher, be an academic. And the thing that happened for me was Martin Seligman. Now, I don't Uh know if you've heard of Martin Seligman. I have, but please share for people who haven't. Before he came up with the idea of learned optimism, of the idea of being able to be happy and find that happiness, he came up with something called learned helplessness. In the 1970s, his conversations around the fact that we could, they did these terrible unethical experiments that you could never do now because they used dogs who could not give permission. And they actually imbued dogs with helplessness and then taught dogs how to take uh, charge again and showed that dogs could learn to be helpless and therefore, by definition, so could humans. And if you learn to be helpless, therefore you could learn depression, therefore you could unlearn it. And that for me was extraordinary. This idea that people were being influenced to make choices 
about being able to take control of their own lives or be helpless. Of course, that is one small component of understanding people struggling in the world. But it was for me so significant that it influenced me to move from the academic world where I was working in a pain clinic, etc., into the world of working clinically with people, trying to assist them to make choices in their lives where they were no longer helpless. And that was really quite extraordinary when I look back to the 1980s and 1990s. Nowadays, it doesn't sound like anything extraordinary on you. We, we know this. We know this. There are so many books written on it, but it was that one idea that we could actually take cho make choices and be influenced by the environment so strongly. So how do we change the environment? That's the big system in which people live. That's what I grew up in terms of human rights and systems whereby we make people safe and we make uh, everyone have opportunities available to them. And it, but it also brought it to the individual and what's happening to the individual within the context of that system and how can we help that individual change? And so when I was reflecting back on this idea of why did I become a psychologist? Well, there were, there were all the negative reasons of not wanting to do what everyone else in my family was doing. But there was that also that, that breakthrough moment where I understood that we could help people make choices that could be good for them in their lives. Mm. But I think sometimes other people articulating what they want to do and having a strong reaction against it is a form of um, elimination, really, sometimes. You just <laughs> yeah. go, well, that's definitely what I don't want to do. Well, except for the reasons for not wanting yeah, to do yeah. it, not Fair always enough. the correct one. <laughs> the fact that I didn't want to have a career because it might be the same as my sister, who, by the way, transformed herself and became an adult educator anyway. So mm -hmm. I was not a lawyer. Yeah, wow. <laughs> anyway, but for all these, you know, we, we do things that are right for us at the time, whether we're 18 or whether we're 28, 38, 58, whatever, we are making choices all the time. And that's another thing that you learn. You make choices with the best information available to you at the time. And sometimes mm -hmm. we have to help people transform by giving them more information giving them support so that they can make choices. And sometimes we can help them see that they're not putting the data together correctly. One of the other things I know as a psychologist is that we are, as human beings, meaning-making creatures. We try and make meaning out of the world. So we try and make patterns to understand the world around us. And sometimes we use data and put it together falsely. So we think we've found a pattern, but the pattern doesn't really exist. But because that pattern is there, we make choices about the things that we do and the way that we live. And so again, as a psychologist, I spend a lot of time with people asking them to think about the way they have come to put meaning to their life and what data are they using? And is there other evidence that might also be helpful for them? Now, psychologists have all sorts of terms. We talk about schema therapy. We talk about various styles of therapy, which is really doing that. It's really challenging people to look at the patterns of the information that they have and seeing whether it's truly a legitimate interpretation of that information. Wow. Okay. 
Uh, my mind is going straight to the amount of whirlwinds people tend to get swept up in since social media came into play yes. on the media landscape. Um, and the fascinating speed with which a single issue voter can become swept up into the whole platform of a particular political party based on that one original single issue. Yes. And, um, it's so and the emotional tugs into yes. these whirlwinds yes. and the patterns that you find that then help you start to confirm, well, yes, this is it. I keep seeing things. And, yes. um, but where's and, the other evidence that's been yeah. from me that would help me make different choices? And so you're seeing it in that big picture way. I think that in the little picture way of um, recently, I've had a bad back for a long time and Five years ago, I went snorkeling. And during that snorkeling episode, I had searing back pain and actually had to be rescued and brought onto the pontoon because I couldn't move. And I had surgery and I went snorkeling again last week to celebrate that I was better. And first of all, I thought I won't put on the fins because it was the fins and that extension on my legs that caused that terrible searing pain. And then I thought, no, I'll give it a go. And I was snorkeling around, no back pain, just amazing and wonderful. So I thought I'd go out of the baby playground area and out into the sea. And as I went out, I heard in my head, but hang on, that pain could come back and you would be alone or just with your partner and no pontoon to be dragged onto and too far from the boys. And you might not be able to move because of the terrible pain hang on, it's safer to go back into the baby playground and just snorkel there. And I thought, you know what? And I heard it all. I heard my brain doing this. And to me, it was, it was a little metaphor for what so many people do, that because they've had one bad experience, they then take it and assume that next time they try to do it, they'll have the same bad response. And so they are not brave enough to go out of the playground. They stay there rather than taking the risk of going out there. Gosh, it's so, I mean, yeah, on a macro and a micro level, exactly. this is just so exactly. common. This is, this is our thinking and how our thinking makes us believe that there are true patterns that are going to define what is going on. Whereas, mm. in fact, what we have to understand that every day, every moment, we're undergoing a bit of an experiment yeah. Every day, every moment, we can make a choice about how we behave. There are little mini fresh slates all the time. <laughs> My four-year-old granddaughter said to me this morning, you know what, you have to go to work and work is very boring for you, but I'm very lucky. I'm going to preschool and it's very exciting there for me. I said, it's so interesting you say that because I don't find work boring at all. I said, I can be very tired by the end of a day but I actually find work exciting and engaging and enjoyable. And I think it's really important we teach four-year-olds that story about our work, but we also remind ourselves about the fact that in our days, even though we might be tired, we might be stressed, and there might be some very mundane parts to what we do, our work itself hopefully can inspire us and give us joy and excitement as well. So that's another story about how the words we use, the things we say to ourselves, will impose a pattern of belief mm. and emotional response. Yeah. And that's what we know as psychologists. Huge, huge. 
Um, and that's what we know of the potential when we work with psychologists and we work with our minds and we raise our awareness on what those mini patterns we're forming are and how how detrimental they can be to actually our lifelong experience. Well, um, let's not use the word detrimental, but perhaps limiting. Limiting, For yes. For many people, um, they're not even aware that there could be more, that their world could be expanded beyond what it is. And that's what I like to do with people is help them expand their world. So um, one of the ways I expand my world is through reading. I read a lot of fiction. I read much more fiction than nonfiction. Most of my colleagues, when we have, I don't know if you know, but psychologists have peer supervision. So we talk to each other a lot and we talk about clients all de-identified, but we talk about, uh, and through doing that, we learn about strategies for helping people and we learn about the world. And most of my colleagues will talk about textbooks they've read, if you like, books that will assist them in their work because other psychologists have written these learned terms. Now, I do a little bit of that, but I'm much more likely to develop my strengths, I think, through the fiction that I read. But every so often, every so often I'm taken by a biography or an autobiography, and that sort of nonfiction will stir me and perhaps inspire me differently. And I read a book only recently called The Choice. Uh -huh. I don't know if you've heard of it. No, I don't know that one. She's a woman in her 90s who survived Auschwitz. To survive oh, yes, sorry, I do. Dancer. Yes. Oprah featured her recently. Oh, did she? Well, now <laughs> I'm saying it was Gordon. such a pop culture introduction to her life, but it was. So now years. Amanda Gordon will feature her because this woman, Edith Eager, survived the most incredible horrors by making a choice to survive, by making a choice to live, and then to making a choice to find joy in what she did in her life. And for me, that is inspirational. And I handed that book recently to a man who was widowed just on two years ago, who knew his wife was dying. And in fact, I met him when his wife was dying and I supported him through those months. And he's now two years on and he read the first chapter and he came back and said, I think I know why you gave me this book. It's going to be a very hard book to get through, isn't it? And I said, yes, it will be very painful for a lot of reasons, but hopefully it will be something of use. He said, you want me to make a choice now, don't you? And I said, what sort of choice might be available to you? And it was the question of whether his identity was going to remain that of widower or if it was going to be John Smith, who has had a lot of circumstances in his life and still carries the love in his heart for a woman who died, but can experience joy and the fullness of life again. Where is his identity going to lie? Is he going to be a survivor of the death of his wife? Or is he going to be a man fully engaged in living his life? And that's really the question that Edith Eager asks. So sometimes I will use a book in therapy to help people recognize. But let me tell you now, because we're talking about grief today, I would not have given him that book even six months ago. To yeah, read. there's a it, time. It, because people ask how long it takes to grieve a, lo a loss. And the answer, of course, is how long is a piece of string? 
Mm. We're going to grieve forever the loss of someone we've loved. But when are we ready to move forward and take other steps? It's different for every person. And it is unique to each person's experience in the way that they move forward through the grieving process. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I think now that we're on to the topic at hand, I wanted to ask you, uh, in all your experience, you've obviously helped hundreds and hundreds of people through grief. Um, how do you feel, I'll ask a big picture, big picture question first, how do you feel we can do grief and honour grief better as communities and cultures? Uh, because I, I did some research uh, as we were approaching this interview and you see some incredible traditions around the world that really honour and hold space for the grieving and for grief itself within us. Uh, but I honestly feel like I look at the culture I'm in, Western European, half Aussie, moved here when I was little, and we're a bit awkward and a bit denialist sometimes, I think. And what shouldn't she be over it by now? Like, why isn't she back to work? And there's shame around not, you know, and, you know, this happens with getting over a pregnancy and having the baby and getting your body back. I mean, we see it everywhere. Um, what, what are we doing wrong? What could we be doing better uh, in, in terms of how, how we're coping? Very big question. Part of it you answered yourself when you talked about the denying. So the first thing I'll say is we need to talk about it more. Mm -hmm. I, we need to talk about death. There was that salt and pepper song all those years ago, let's talk about sex, baby. Yeah. Very important. I used to sing it to my teenage children and upset them terribly. <laughs> I did so. Oh, I'm glad I'm on the right track embarrassed. Yeah. But talking about death is very important. But before mm -hmm. we go on to that and how we do that, I think that other thing that we need to do is be open to the idea of not having to push through things. We live in a world where somehow a growth economy is better than a non-growth economy, but no one's ever been able to explain to me why. Why is it better that the economy grows? Why is it better that we recover quickly from a loss of someone who's died? Why is it better that we recover quickly or that our body is somehow back to what it was rather than being allowed to be a post-pregnancy shape? Why is it better that the children are raised quickly from one stage to the next? No one has ever been able to explain that to me. I think that it's time for us really. And if COVID has done nothing else to the world, maybe it's said, maybe it's time just to stop and take stock. And maybe part of the taking stock is saying that each position that we're in needs more space, needs more time. And grieving is one of those things. There are some cultures, I'm blessed to be part of a culture which does allow space for grieving. I'm Jewish and oh, within wonderful. Jewish yeah. culture, the way we grieve is something that I try and transmit without any religious overlay. Mm. My clients, this idea of going into full intensive grieving initially and then gradually moving your way through it rather than having to be intensively grieving and then stop. Yeah. Okay. We're done. Yeah. That's right. Judaism will allow some space so that over a period of time you move gradually through the different formats of, if you like, of grieving. 
but the other part that works in that culture and so many others that are not yours, not the not the this sort of uh, predominant Western Aussie culture, is this idea of publicly acknowledging the death and the time that it takes to recover, which doesn't happen in, as you say, in this it's sort of hidden. It's almost, did someone die? Should I say anything? Instead of, oh, she's lost someone, let's go and talk to her and check she's okay. So, so that, that whole idea of talking about it, acknowledging it, putting death in the public space just as birth is I I don't know about you but I in the social media feed something's just start to come through about parents talk and it's all about all these people having babies right so we're allowed to put that in the public space why not put death also in the public space not just someone who is a veteran who raised millions of dollars and therefore we give him a public funeral what about the ordinary person who lived an ordinary life and was beloved by those close to them or perhaps wasn't particularly close to many people but lived a life because every life is significant and worthy of honor mm. that's what we have to get back to talking about Mm, absolutely. Oh, it's um, it's so it just feels so right to be talking yeah. about it. And in fact, my husband and I were just talking about our admiration for the Jewish faith and community and how they honor the dead yes. uh, and uh, don't rush the grieving process and actually have stages mm. with the men not grow, you know, growing their beard for yes. either thirty days or a year, depending on yes. um, different um denomination yes. yeah, tradition. Yes. tradition and uh, just fascinating when we were digging through it and I was like oh I'm speaking to Amanda this week I can't yeah. wait to ask more about that yes yes so um, one of the things that's very interesting about that though is that because it's a specified time during your which you're allowed to do various things so what we need to explain is that over the course of a year if you've lost a parent there are very stringent restrictions of what you may do in the first seven days then less stringent over the 30 days. And then there's another 11 months of stringent, but not quite as stringent restrictions around your life. Here are the issues. By about the 10th month, most people are over the restrictions. They might still be grieving. They might still feel this terrible loss. But there are very few who aren't saying, I'm ready to listen to music now. I'm ready to go to a public event. I'm ready to go to a wedding and dance but you're not allowed to until 12 months. You can do what you like. You can do it, by the way, you can do what you like. If you live within a very religious community, there would be more stringencies around what people expect of you, but you can still do what you like. There's not going to be a lightning bolt. Nothing terrible will happen, but it actually frees you to just grieve. And there is something very... I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. I have lost actually both my parents within the last couple of years. I lost my father in August and it was very sudden, whereas with my mother, it was very slow. Mm -hmm. And again, this is something we want to talk about. Yeah. How do you grieve differently when it's been an expected and slow and almost wanted death because it's so awful as opposed to he was healthy yesterday and we had this good telephone conversation I've been rung by the hospital and he's got six hours so I better just go quickly which was my experience with each of my parents and was grieving different well I did an awful lot of crying before my mother died I did 
quite a lot of crying after she died, but differently in intensity because there was relief mixed in. With my dad, there was no crying before. There was probably just a normal irrit irritation of an older adult having to look after an even older parent, you know, and, and but who is really quite competent and able and why is he asking me to do this when he could do it himself sort of thing. Um, and then for me, there was shock. And it was much harder to go through the process than with my mother because there was no shock. We were waiting. We knew it was going to happen. In fact, I stayed overnight at the nursing home with her the night before she died because I knew it was imminent and I just wanted to do that. Whereas with my father, um, I'd had this great telephone conversation on the Friday, but it was COVID. I couldn't actually see him. And he passed away on the Sunday, so I hadn't seen him. But we'd, we'd, we'd gone on a virtual walk. I'd walked and we'd talked. So that was good. But it was a shock and it took me quite a long time. I didn't cry till much later with him. I, I just got on with the functional things that had to be done with the funeral, etc. And of course, we can't even begin to talk about the impact of COVID on people's grieving over, over the last year, what it's meant when there have been, where, when there's been accessibility to funerals and social support, etc. But so I had the experience of the two different ways of them dying, if you like, and what it meant. And with my mother, I didn't go through the phrase that the phase that the researchers talk about called shock, when there's a death, the shock in anything like the same way as I did with my dad, where you could really say I was in shock. I couldn't even I was speechless. I couldn't even tell people. It was just it just happened. One minute he was there, the next minute he wasn't. Quite different from the other lengthy, horrible, horrible experience of just waiting until it happened. Um, but again, quite different experiences from someone who loses someone unexpectedly. For me, each of my parents were elderly. Yeah. It was going to happen at some stage. Yeah. They wanted it to happen before I died. You know what I mean? It was, mm. it was the right way around. Things happened in the right order. When things happen out of order, it's much more complicated. Mm. So if you have a sick child and you know the child is going to die and you're waiting. Or a tragic dead, accident. Or, well, that's the one. So the sick child and the waiting could be equivalent to my mum in terms of you know and you're going through that horrible and you're grieving beforehand. But the grieving afterwards is long and complicated. When it's a tragic accident with the child and it's a shock, one minute they're alive and the next minute they're dead, it's the same as my dad, but quite different because it's out of time. It's wrong. Children are not meant to die before their parents. Children are not meant to die before they're adults and live a full life. That's that's the pattern that I'm talking about in you know, I talked earlier about patterns and how we make patterns in our minds and we interpret the world and et cetera, et cetera. It's wrong. In fact, children do die. Children do die before their parents. But because we don't talk about it in the way I've just done, it's always a shock. It's never, no, it's not right if we look at rightness, but actually it's much more common than most of us living in Australia, living in the Western world, affluent society would understand. It still happens, both from childhood illnesses, but also from um, just complications of pregnancy and child. Did you know one in three pregnancies ends, or one in three first pregnancies does not end up with a live child? 
I did not know that. So whether it's a stillbirth or something goes wrong very early with the child or most likely a miscarriage, sometimes before the mother even knows she's pregnant, but the grief of loss of a child is actually very common. But people don't talk about it. When my, when my daughter had a, uh, lost a child in mid-pregnancy, nearly every one of my friends came out and told the story of their own experience. But no one had talked about it before. So it was a shock. People don't talk. It's like they're in this little club and it only has happened to them. But it's not true. It happens. In that circumstance, what is the impact of holding on to a grief secretly and not oh, sharing. It's terrible. It's terrible because you don't grieve. Grieving, grieving is both a personal and a social act because the, when you think about it, you grieve internally, but when you can cry with someone else, you don't make them feel worse. They can give you something so they can feel better. And somehow it's a it's part of living in the world. We're human beings. We're social creatures. We need to share all of our emotions. You know when something wonderful happens, you want to ring your partner or your best friend or your mum and tell them the wonderful news? You know yeah. that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We glorify wonderful news. We but celebrate as a human wonderful being, news. As a, as a human being, we also need to share the sadnesses. But then we don't because we're scared it'll upset someone. We don't want to hurt them and etc etc so we need to do both and so when we don't it gets stuck inside sometimes you just share something like that with a very small group of people you don't have to share it with the world that this terrible thing happened but you do need to be able to share it with people who are close and get some connection and support and when you've heard it's happened to someone else it doesn't ease your pain you still feel the pain but you know you're not alone and somehow that's helpful. Mm, very helpful. Um, when we lose a partner and we're in, you know, young adulthood, midlife, there are children, how on earth does one manage the grieving process of losing the partner but overnight becoming a single parent? Um, for me, it seems to be one of the most challenging circumstances a human being could find themselves in certainly in the modern world certainly in anglo-saxon culture where we tend to become nucleus overdrive and don't have a, a number of villages set up for support necessarily um i i don't doubt you've spoken to many people in that situation what are some helpful <laughs> tools, I guess, um, for the people who want to support and for the person themselves? So the first thing I would say is that in the initial stages, even if it was expected, there will be that shock that I described and the grieving person won't be able to be the mum or the dad that they previously were. So the most important thing, if there are children involved, is for someone who knows the children to be able to step in and be a support for the children. So the children feel safe because the worst thing when one parent dies is the children's fear that the other parent will disappear as well. And the other parent can't be there for the children. So in a funny way, they have disappeared. 
So what we do is we, we provide a shell around the children, hopefully a loving aunt or best friend or sister or whomever, there will be someone or grandma or whomever it is who can provide that shell for the children, not taking them away from the grieving parent, but providing the parenting bit that frees the other parent to grieve and the children to know they're safe. Provide a sense of safety for the children and freedom for the other person to grieve. Then we can gradually reintroduce and support. And sometimes, you know, that's a, so often I see this issue of how do you both grieve and live life? It's like the two parts, we call almost a two track model. You have to get back on track in terms of your emotions and that is get over the grieving, but you also have to get back on track with living your life. And you have to get the two sort of- To coexist. To yeah. coexist. And that's the work that we, often a professional can be very helpful in getting the two things back in alignment. But the thing that a supporter can do initially is look after the children so that the person is free to grieve and then gradually support the, the bereft person in reconnecting with the kids. So giving them a little bit of space just to parent maybe one child and take the other two children out or make the meals so mum can sit and talk with the children while they're eating their meal. Because when you're grieving, it's very hard to do the more than one thing at a time. Mm -hmm. So if you're making the meal, you can't have the normal conversation with the kids that you're having. Yeah. One person can do- Because you're making the meal and doing grief. Yes. Or you're sitting and chatting and doing grief, but you can't exactly. do grief, meal and chat. You've okay. got it. So if the supporter can do some of the functional stuff, and that's why, you know, even in our Western, we do some good things around grieving, even in our community that has lost many of the rituals. There are some very important rituals. And one is the bringing food to the grieving person. It's a wonderful, valuable, important thing that we do that we can't lose. And you know, we talk about that casserole that turns up at the front door. It is such a vital support, even if it's not eaten for a week or two, even if it's put in the freezer initially. But if there is food there and that doesn't need to be prepared, then the person who is mourning can actually be sustained so that they can do some other things that they need to do, like connect with their kids or fold the washing or, you know, or go to work, to go to work, whatever. So we still do some very good things. I, I take your point that some of the rituals have been lost, but there are still some very good things that people do. Um, connecting, the other, the other thing that you can do is just be there and sit with the person who is mourning. So maybe the children can go to school and have a normal existence and the person who has been recently widowed might just need a friend to sit there at home with them. And it doesn't matter whether they talk or not. They might talk about, remember when we did this, or can you remember that funny time, or remember the way he snored or whatever it was, and then have a cup of tea together, maybe fold the washing, do a load of washing the way you would when you help someone who's just come home with a baby and is joyous. You might come in and do those things and then go away and leave them in the evening or listen, because there might be a vital time of day that that person really needs support. And you can help in that 
you know, there might be something you can do in that. I, it, it's so individual, it's almost impossible to tell you. In the rituals that we were talking about earlier, the Jewish rituals, and in fact, in Islam and in various other countries, in various countries, there are various rituals. And the first one, so for instance, in the first seven days after I lost each of my parents, I wasn't allowed to cook. People had to cook for me. I wasn't allowed to leave the house. Even the prayers that we said, the morning prayers, people came to our home and we said the prayers in the home. We didn't leave the house. A bit like the early days after you've had a baby and it's better to settle in with your emotions and your grief and your joy in that point and you settle in with your emotions and just be you and get to know yourself as a new mother. Now you're getting to know yourself as a person bereft of that beloved. And you're getting to know yourself. You're sitting at home. You're not racing off doing all the other things. So in those first seven days, you don't cook for yourself. People bring food. In the next period of time, you're allowed to go off to work and do normal things, but then you come home and you don't do anything else. In the 11 months, you gradually start to do more things that are suitable, but still give yourself that space and time. And the other bit for religious people of whatever religion, there are prayers or psalms that are appropriate and right that can be said daily that connect the, the mourner with the person whom they've lost. And different religions have different traditions and different ways of doing things. And we can all steal from each other's and make it work for you. But there might be might be a particular song. So, for instance, if the worst tragedy occurred, and you said the worst thing must be losing your partner and having young children, I would say from my experience with all the people with whom I've ever worked, the worst thing is losing a child to suicide. Suicide. That is the worst thing. When the child potentially could have been assisted by you but couldn't be. Sorry. No, I cry with I have sat here and cried. That's the very worst thing you could possibly imagine could occur. Mm-hmm. Yes, possibly. Yes. And I can't even remember now because of our emotion. I can't even remember what I was going to, why I brought that up as being the worst possible thing that could occur. But it's the idea of learning to still be you, having a different relationship with that child than you had before because the child is still in your heart you will always have a relationship with the child but the child isn't next to you nagging asking for pocket money wanting to do something refusing to get up for school whatever it may be the child isn't there the child is still in your heart and what you're learning is to make a new relationship with that child while living your life they're the two tracks i'm talking about the new relationship and living your life and that new relationship with that child that you've lost might include continuing to sing a song daily that you used to sing with them or tell a story or um, imagine or remember something good that occurred and that might be part of your daily ritual and that's okay so it doesn't have to be a prayer that's written in a prayer book it doesn't have to be something that a priest or a rabbi or an imam or or a sheikh has told you is the right words to use. When you're mourning, you need to find a way of reconnecting, making a new relationship with that person whom you've lost. I remember when I 
again, bring to me, forgive me, but just trying to concretize some of the things and it, it's not the same. Oh, no, you should but keep talking when, right now because I can't talk, so no, but, take it so away, when, Amanda. <laughs> so, but when I went to the doctor and was told I was allowed to dance again after my back surgery, all I could say to my husband was how happy my mother would have been. Oh, because she knew I had a bad back. She also loved to dance. We used to dance together in a dance class together until she was 80 years old. And I, did, I realized that I didn't have my surgery until both my parents had passed away because mm -hmm. I'd been responsible for them. And I realized I'd actually put it off to make it safe that I could just look after me. This is what I mean about the choices we make. Every day we make choices in our lives about how we do things. And all I could think about was how pleased she would have been. Can you hear how I was still carrying my mother in my heart? You still knew what would be important to her. So when you think about whether you've lost a child or a partner or a parent, we still carry them with us all the time. Grieving doesn't mean that we've come to an end of our grieving when we no longer carry them in our heart. If we're grieving right, we keep them in our heart forever. We just change the amount of focus we have to give them in a way that we are able to make a joyous life in the present. In the present. Because if all we're doing is focusing on that relationship with the person in our heart, then we're ignoring the rest of the world that's going on. We need to be able to do both. And the reason I brought up this, this terrible tragedy of young people suiciding is if they only knew what they were doing to the parents whom they loved. I've never heard of a child who suicided because they didn't love their parents. I imagine if, if it had occurred to them for a second that their parents would continue to grieve and would spoil their lives and wouldn't go to Hawaii because it reminded them of their child or wouldn't go on this holiday or wouldn't do that because it reminded them, they wouldn't kill themselves. So we have to keep letting the children know they will be forever in our hearts and we would miss them, even if they are being little rotters. Because children make stupid choices based on the moment and we have to help them we have to help them in every moment to know that they're loved and that they would be grieved and lost. But that doesn't mean overwhelming them with that. It happens in our normal, in our normal parenting. Um, I should add that I've never yet heard of a child who is very young who has suicided, who hasn't almost who hasn't almost certainly had a very significant mental health issue, which may not have been acknowledged or recognized, but was there. It's not that the parents have done something terrible in their parenting. I'm I'm sure that happens. There are parents who are appalling and are cruel and do terrible, neglectful or nasty or horrible things to children. Many of those children become very resilient adults, by the way but some of them might lose their lives to that. But the people I'm talking about who are carrying that child in their heart, that I'm talking about who have lost that child, the child has in fact been struggling with something and then something has tipped them. And there is nothing, I know the parents still don't believe me. I can't tell you how many parents still don't believe me that there was nothing that they could have done to have stopped it. And part of their grieving is forever that sense of guilt that they could have done something differently. But we have to shift it and help them understand that at any age, at every age, we make choices. 
and we make choices based on the data available to us at the time. And we as parents do our best to give our children the best data we can so they can make the best interpretations of the world that they can. But we can't stop, we can't protect them all the time. We can't. And it's not our job to protect them all the time. It feels like it's our job. It feels like it has to be. But you know what? We're also living our lives. And we have to be doing that too. And what can we do if we're struggling with guilt around grief? Because it seems like you you were talking about forming two lanes and getting on with the things and also allowing grief. But with guilt in the mix, does that make the issue even more complex and harder to build that second lane? Uh, Absolutely. And guilt... Guilt is a pretty useless emotion in this respect. It doesn't actually help you manage your grief and doesn't help you build a new relationship with the child. But that's what I try and help people do is understand that their um, feeling guilty isn't actually helping their relationship with the child that they have to now have for the rest of their lives. Mm. So let's keep building that relationship because it's the best one they've got. Mm. And then the guilt could be, uh, I didn't pick up the phone when my dad called Correct. Uh, you know, and then they had a heart attack or the guilt. You know, there's so many people so many that get poisoned and, by that guilt. Yeah, yes. And what we need to help people do is understand that in life things happen and we are all, this is my philosophy, we're making the best choices we can most of the time. There are times we don't make the best choices. There are times we know we're having that third drink and it's going to make us a bit less responsible and we shouldn't be doing it. There are better ways of living our lives. So we don't always make the best choices, but we make a choice that we think is reasonable in that context at that time. And that's an entirely reasonable thing to do. So with guilt, guilt is a really interesting one because we have to think about... um, how we can assist that person still feel good about their relationship with the person. Don't let that new relationship, that one that they're making for the rest of their lives, be interfered with by guilt. And that's a good enough reason to give up the guilt. Your guilt is actually stopping you connect with your darling Jason, whom you loved and adored. Let's get you back to Jason because you and he... You know, he did things that he shouldn't have done and he knew to feel guilty and he said sorry. He will understand when you say sorry to him. He truly will understand. You did the very best you could. You were the very best mother or father or sibling or child that you could possibly be at the time, that we are all flawed, that none of us is perfect. And that's the other thing we can do. We can help survivors. We can help mourners. And we can help grievers understand that none of us is perfect. We're each of us doing the best we can in difficult circumstances. And circumstances can be more or less difficult at various stages for people. And, and we've, that's the other bit. Here we go. Alex, here's yeah. another story. <laughs> Let's do it. You know me. My brain just goes everywhere. This issue of judging others, you know, maybe I would have done better or I would have done different. I oh, know goodness, that parents yeah. of children who have suicided also feel one of the reasons they keep it to themselves and don't want to say is their fear that others will judge them. They're spending their whole lives judging themselves for having been not good enough parents. And now someone else is going to judge me and say I wasn't good enough. 
I promise you, none of us can get into anyone else's shoes. I cannot live your life any more than you can live my life. We can only live the life we've got and put one foot forward every day after the other to get through the best we can and find the joyous bits and try and transmit and communicate those joyous bits while doing all the other responsible things that we have to do in this world. I love that you brought up judgment because it's such a simple thing that we can gently call each other out on uh, at at an everyday dining table, having a coffee with a friend, and it doesn't have to be harsh, but it is so important to, I find, calling out judgment so important. Yes. You know, it's interesting because another word that we could use that is so dangerous is the word gossip because gossip is, in fact, judgment. When we're talking about other people, we are bringing our judgment to bear. When I sit, I have this wonderful advantage of refusing to talk about people in case one of them is my client <laughs> and I've forgotten think they're my friend or my friend, my friends might think they're my friend or might think I know them personally, but I don't, so I don't talk, right? So I don't go, I try, I try, I work. It's very tempting, but I work really hard not to gossip. And so when someone tries to, to, I was sitting with friends yesterday and they were talking about two other friends about whom they're concerned because they're not getting on. And I just said, I don't know. We're all adults and they will work it out. I can't, I can't, I can't get in there and make a judgment about it. And I try and help other people not do it as well. And I I just laugh. They say, you're the psychologist. And I say, yeah, I have no idea. I have no idea. Is that helpful? Yeah, it is. Yeah. (laughs) By not having any idea, it means you can't gossip about them because you have no idea. Yeah. I really love that. Mm. Um, I love that that came up. This, this is why I love tangents. The, the really good, <laughs> useful stuff always comes up in a tangent. Yeah. yeah. Um, moving through and moving on. Yes. Please explain. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, moving on implies once again that we're just sort of dropping that person out of our heart. It's gone, mm. gone now, we can move on. Moving through is what we do through life. Yeah. And And now, if you think about my model of holding that person in your heart with a new relationship built with them. I love that. It will change and which will grow over time, by the way, because as I grow and change, my relationship with my mum, who passed away now three years ago, is different than it was three years ago. Wow. Can you explain how? Because I think because I've matured. Uh Because I've been able to throw peel away some of those layers of my own hurt or whatever, because we all have stuff, right? So letting go, recognising what was my stuff, not her stuff, whatever can change what's happened now. So I'm continuing to move through that relationship with my mum, hopefully for the rest of my life. And, in fact, that's what we mean. In Judaism, we have a beautiful saying, people say, I don't know what to say. Someone's died, what do I say to them? And we say this really ridiculous thing. Do you know what mm-hmm. we say? What do you say? I wish you a long life. That's what I say to someone who has just lost their parent or their child or their sibling or their partner. I say, I wish you a long life. And they think, are you mad? <laughs> I want to die right now. I want to throw myself <laughs> into the grave after my beloved. Yeah. What do you mean? I don't want to live. How can I live with the pain of having lost them? So why is it a good thing to say? Let's reflect on how on this whole idea of holding this person in your heart. Let's continuing to grow in your relationship with them, to move through your relationship with them. 
the only way this person remains alive is through your ongoing life with them. So when I have a long uh, life, my relationship with my mother has grown, has and changed. And their memory continues. To on. And the memory continues because I'm there to remind people, if you like. Oh, my so gosh. I'm going to try not to cry them. again in this episode. <laughs> but that I'm not beautiful. suggesting that people who don't come from that culture would find it comforting at the time that they've lost someone to be wished along life. I don't think for many people at that moment it is comforting. It is merely ritualistic. But when you reflect on what it means, it is so profound that the way to keep the dead person alive is in the hearts and minds of the person who, of the mourners, of the people who are still alive with them, holding them, holding them. So it's profound. Now, I do not recommend to anyone listening to this that you start going around saying <laughs> people, I wish you a long life when they are grieving someone they love. Yep. Instead, Noted. just say how wonderful that you are holding on to them and that remember they'll be in your heart forever. Is there anything of their memory that you want to share with me that will help you hold on to them? Tell me a story that by my knowing it will make them more alive. Oh. Talk like that. Not in the first day. The no. first day you make them food. You hand them yeah. food. You make sure they've got food. You make sure that they have their bed made and they are tucked in. You make sure there's a glass of water by the bed. You make sure that the children are being cared for. That's what you do in the first days. But as time goes on, talking to them in view of moving through in continuing to have a relationship with that beloved is mm. going to help you and help them and it'll make you closer to your friend as well so that's rather nice isn't it yeah it's beautiful um so early days can it be a bit of a loose framework to suggest that we simply continue to ask the question how can I make life easier for you right now what can I take off your plate yes and then yes, absolutely and I'm here for you yeah and and if you don't want me to do anything but you want me to sit I have time to sit okay okay yeah and then how do we know uh, should we be um led by the person grieving to kind of know when they do want that more um, emotional exchange, the memories. Um, yep. yep. Because that's obviously different. You know, everyone yes, has a right to their well own timeline. Know, depends on how well you know the person. Don't gotcha. intrude yeah. yourself into a stranger's life and demand that they share beyond <laughs> what they want to share. Oh, gosh, I'm, I'm be only laughing because, A, I'm trying to get over the grief that came up at the first half <laughs> of it, and uh, humour is always my medicine there, um, but also yeah. to, to just picture one of those comedy skits of someone barging in and saying, tell me all about them, and it just right. sounds so hideous. Well, I think of an episode of Call the Midwife uh -huh. where there was a woman grieving and the midwife who knew her not much at all. I mean, this was an older woman, not someone whom, whose baby she delivered, but she was there as a district nurse. I love that show, by the way. It cry is a good show. Episode, cry every episode. So she had a medal there. And so the midwife just said, can you tell me about this? And it 
freed a flood of associations. So if you're sitting there with them and you notice a photo, why don't you tell me something? Would you tell me about this? Tell me about this time. What was going on here? Where were you? What was going on? Especially if it's with the two of them, the person who's passed away and the mourner in that photo, then that's a beautiful. Or ask them if they'd like to look at some photo albums or share some photos. Um, unfortunately, it's, everything's on the phone nowadays, which is much worse. But you know, when they were on the mantelpiece, it was easier. Um, yeah, and let them lead, but be aware of your own place. Now, someone said, the other thing is sometimes people get really stuck and they're just not moving on. Uh, this is exactly what I wanted to ask about. So how do we know yes. either as the person grieving or the onlooker um, what that looks like in terms of how we then reach out to perhaps a, a professional psychologist, yes. counsellor? Yeah, I, I guess if you're crying all the time and it's stopping you doing the things you want to do, and time is moving on and there's sort of the ordinary supports that occur because you've just lost someone are withdrawing and you're feeling like you're not coping. There's certainly no shame or no harm in having a chat with your GP potentially and getting a referral to a GP, to a psychologist. Um, there might be some self-help books that are really useful. There are some um there are some ideas that people can get just from reading. But if you're finding that you're you're just crying over all the memories of the same, the patterns of the same, or if you're a carer and, again, you're, you're finding the person just seems to be going through the same stories or perhaps they're no longer looking after themselves, that's a really important sign. If the person isn't showering, isn't getting dressed, isn't just getting up and going through daily activities, they need some professional support because complex grief needs complex support and we want to be friends and family and neighbors but we we can't go beyond that without permission of that person and without support ourselves so one of the things I was involved with some years ago was setting up a support group whereby people who themselves had suffered a bereavement put up their hands we trained them and they put up their hands to support someone who was themselves going through the early stages of loss and they became that friend who with the permission of the bereaved person went into their home and sat with them and looked at and heard stories or whatever but we always ensured there was a psychologist or social worker to whom that support person spoke so we felt like it went beyond uh just a friendship we would we would get professional support. So it really is quite a complex issue working out when it's needed. But I, but I think I think most people know. I think I think most people know. Many people might have to be dragged, kicking and screaming to see the psychologist the first time. It won't be kicking or scre and screaming, but they might protest a little. But once they're there, it becomes pretty clear whether it's useful or not. So for instance, someone rang me one day and said, oh, Amanda, I'd like to have an appointment with you and I need it really urgently. Could I come in today or tomorrow? And I said, you know, I'm really a bit busy. Can't be that urgent, can it? Tell me what's happened. And she burst into tears and her husband had died but six months ago. And she was just feeling like I cannot cope. Now I cannot cope and I know I need help now. And it was the right thing for me to do to see them now. Whereas if she had said to me, I lost my husband a week ago, I would say, have you someone who can sit with you? 
Can you spend some time with friend? If you want to come in, fine, no shame, but just don't panic if you're feeling awful. I would expect you to feel I want and guilty and all of those things, and that's all okay. And you will move through all of those emotions and you will start to reconnect with your beloved over time. Because while you're going through all those emotions, by the way, you're not, not doing all of the hard work of reconnecting, mm-hmm. building that relationship. Mm. And so, so it's that complex mix. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so does that apply to, I wanted to ask you about this. We often, I, I guess, might self-impose this idea that as we move through grief, we get, in inverted commas, better and better. And I uh, haven't got a huge amount of experience with uh, grief. I hinted at a couple of experiences uh, earlier when I burst into tears. Um, but I've certainly had experiences with people close to me uh, going through horrific, um, uh, tragic accidents, etc. And um and I would just hate for anyone out there that is listening to this show to feel like the steps always have to go forward and we don't get to dip back and have this whole other thing come up because of a trigger from another memory. You might be in a location that brings a whole bunch of stuff up. And I feel like um, part of uh, grief awareness is being very aware that it's not linear. <laughs> it's not at all. Yeah. I always, I always think of it as a bit like a winding tunnel. Mm-hmm. So you start to go through the tunnel and it winds everywhere and you glimpse sunlight and then mm. it curves back away from the sunlight again and then you can glimpse the sunlight and it's a little bit closer, but then it turns into the dark again and I don't know how long it takes to get through the tunnel, but when you come through the tunnel, you've still got all the hard work that you did that you're holding on to and that's that relationship that you've reconnected, rebuilt. Um, but, yes, we there will always be a possibility that you will dip into sadness. That book I mentioned earlier, The Choice, mm. will show you how that can sometimes happen. Oh, that's on my March list. Yes, I do read definitely it. listening. And it, and it can be... Um, it, it can, in fact, be something entirely unexpected mm-hmm. that will do that, that will that you think you're doing fine and, and everything is good, and then it's a smell. Smells are very powerful, by the way. Mm, uh, the, the they sure smell, are. Sense of smell can trigger memories that are not in your cognitive brain. You don't yeah. even know you have, and you'll smell something, and, and that could make you cry or it might be that you hear a particular song or whatever so for instance I sang a lullaby to my children and they now sing it to their children mm. and so it's really lovely when I'm being grandma I can sing that lullaby and I remember the first time one of the grandchildren said how did you know that song yeah, I love that I said that I used to sing ones. it to your mummy <laughs> but you know what my mummy used to sing it to me so even as I sing it to my grandchildren, I am reminded of my mother. And so there will be things that reconnect you, don't necessarily make you fall into a tragic heap, don't necessarily stop you from functioning, but will give you that sense of memory, which is grief, which is not all bad, of course, because you've got that memory. 
sometimes even a joyous memory, but reminds you of the loss. And, and that can happen and will happen throughout your life. Mm. And can part of the reason the dips happen and, um, you know, tremendous sadness, we can be overcome by tremendous sadness, can part of that reason be um, like almost a fear of, of creating the new relationship, like seeing the joy in that memory or the beauty in that memory because it might feel like you're then letting go more in a way because you're constructing something new. I don't very frightened so, yeah, I think you're talking about this idea of I can't remember what his face looked like anymore. Maybe yes. So okay. when people say that, they say, they say, I'm I'm moving, I'm getting on with my life, but I'm getting very frightened because I can no longer see his face. And I say, don't be fearful, because your new relationship is built on different aspects of that. It's not the visual, it's something else. But yes, it can be very frightening to to think that I'm really going to lose full vestiges. You're not, you're not. You're building that relationship that you're holding and that's okay. Um, you know, there are, ti- there are times that the grief can feel overwhelming. And what I want you to know is it's very rare. I won't say no one's ever died of a broken heart. It's not quite true. We hear of old couples who have been together for 70 years one dies within two days, the next one is dead. So there's no doubt that people can die of a broken heart. But most of the time, our hearts mend. They'll always have a scar. And think of it like sometimes the weather goes very strange and a scar can get itchy. So there's going to be something that's going to stir up that scar. But your heart will mend. It will be able to love again. will be able to feel again. will be able to feel every emotion again as it mends but it will always have been influenced by and modified by the love you had for that other person whom you've lost. So hearts mend, and that's what I have to remind people in the midst of their despair, that they will never come through what has happened. They will always know it was their fault, etc. Your heart will mend, and you are allowed to feel joy without being disloyal to the one whom you've lost, and to, especially to widows. It, you'll be able to find joy again with another partner. That's not being disloyal to the other. It's being entirely loyal because the other taught you to love. Mm. Oh. Learn to love with that person. So now your loyalty is great. Here I go again. Oh, gosh. <laughs> oh, wow. It's beautiful. Scary, I'd imagine, for someone listening who's going through that, but at the same time, beautiful. I hope so. I hope you can see the beauty in your own grieving, if you're listening now, that your grieving is a way of reconnecting and you're allowed to go through this and you will find that although you will always hold on to the one you've loved and you do love and the love will be strong, it will make you stronger in new loves and new happiness and new joy and that's okay. And if you're not feeling that, then do seek help. Do talk to someone people like me all around the country. The good news is since COVID, you can even do it on telehealth. Yeah, which is wonderful. You're feeling too anxious about going face-to-face with a psychologist. You can get a referral and see someone on telehealth. We can find ways of supporting you because you don't, it shouldn't be done on your own, as I've said. Mm. 
talk to a family member or best friend. But if you feel like you need to take it further than that, don't be frightened. We're available. We're there. Amanda, I feel like I just want to carry you as a little mini Amanda on my shoulder for the rest of my life. What a deeply touching and inspiring interview. Probably, I think this would definitely be a record on my crying on the show. That's, uh... <laughs> I do my best for people. You know, we, some, we sometimes look at how many tissues have gone during any session and say, that was a good one. <laughs> it was a good one. I'll probably hang up and cry some more. All right. Look after yourself. Thank you so much for joining me today, Amanda. I think this is going to help a lot of people and everyone to connect further to Amanda's work. Uh, we have all the details in the show notes. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. And I want to remind you that you can come join me on social on Instagram at Life or one word, or my personal Instagram uh, at underscore Alex with two X's, Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T. On Facebook, you can find us at Lotox Life uh, and, of course, lotoxlife.com. And if you want additional support and community around leading a Lotox Life, I can't recommend a better thing to do than to come join us at the Lotox Club for just $49 Australian per year, which is about $29.30 US about 27 euro and about 25 pounds you get a stack of club member perks and the benefit of a beautiful private facebook community so check out the website lotoxlife.com hit the explore tab and you'll see join the lotox club as your very first option there i hope to see you in there if not i will see you in our wider community sometime soon thanks again for tuning in